Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing the fourth and final installment in our Humphrey Bogart retrospective series, The Desperate Hours. This is your co-host Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago, and I'm a little bit sad that this is our last one because I've really enjoyed this series so far. But I am too. Maybe we'll come back and do some more later. But as of right now, it is. I'm excited to talk about this one because this one, uh, this is the one I have heard least amount about, even though it even has a remake. Oh yeah, oh the remake. We kind of don't talk about the remake. Everybody forgets that it has a remake. I did. I knew it many years ago. And I watched the trailer and I'm like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Plus, I think it's rated R and probably goes farther with clearly being in, you know, the late 20th century. It's going to pull some of those things. Right. And I mean, the funniest thing was, though, is that if you don't look up the Desperate Hours on IMDb, at least through the app, uh, it's kind of hard to find. You'll find the 1990 version, the remake, but you won't find the original unless you type in the Desperate Hours. Ah, okay. Which is interesting. Yes. We sh- we are reviewing the Desperate Hours, not Desperate Hours, the 1990 remake right. that neither of us have seen. And right. who knows if we ever will. We're talking about the one from 1955. Yes. And uh, I was first introduced to the Desperate Hours when I was younger. I was going through, my dad and I were going through kind of a Humphrey Bogart kick we were just kind of watching all the Bogart movies we could. We have a good friend who owns a lot of Bogart's films. They had them all on VHS, I think. DVD really wasn't too prevalent, particularly with the Bogart films anyway. So uh, this was one of them that we watched, and it was quite a bit different. And it was probably one that was more accessible to me, this and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, whereas when you're younger, Casablanca is probably going to go over your head, and Maltese Falcon is probably... I did enjoy the Maltese Falcon, but I was always lost when I was watching it when I was younger. But this one was really different because uh, Bogart hadn't played this kind of a role in a while because he had been come he had come been come to known as more of a suave leading man uh aside from treasure of the sierra madre where he really kind of did something different and really expressed his uh acting methods in a you know a really unique interesting way but i would say i mostly think of bogart as more of a good guy, not always the best guy. Clearly, he makes very, uh, he's always in ethical conundrums, I would say. But this one, he is a, a bad guy. Yeah, this is the first time in the three movies, at least, that we're talking about that Humpy Bogart really takes on fully this bad guy role. We do kind of see him transition in Treasure of the Sierra Madre, but this one, he is fully a antagonist he's not necessarily a good guy turned bad there towards the end of that one that's the first time we actually ever see him in this kind of a role especially in this in this little series that we're doing here now well this movie is based off of the novel by joseph hayes i i had never heard of joseph hayes before joseph hayes also after the novel came out he also wrote a stage play and then 
The movie came out the same year with only a few months apart, and Joseph Hayes also wrote the screenplay, so just doing everything, turning it into everything. And it is a William Wyler production. William Wyler did direct this movie. I also noted the scores by by Gail Kubik, who I had never heard of before, but I did note his score um, is better than probably the score we reviewed last time, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. This score is actually pretty good. I guess we'll talk about that a bit later. Alan hated it. Okay. <laughs> Basically, it's the worst thing I've ever Okay. Heard. No, I'm kidding. Well, <laughs> I'm <fine>. just kidding. <laughs> All right. And uh, this movie is kind of unique for the time period, I would say, because I was trying to think back to thinking, okay, you know, most, quote, scary movies at the time involved people in costumes, monsters, aliens. We really hadn't seen something where a very innocent family or just innocent people in general are really kind of trapped and pitted against this kind of great evil that is could very well uh, destroy them. And I was thinking of The Night of the Hunter, which actually did come out the same year. And I would argue The Night of the Hunter is slightly scarier because it's about a preacher who murders a woman and hunts her children through the countryside. Of uh, that plot doesn't get you scared. Uh, so I think audiences were starting to get introduced to l- a little bit of a darker tone in cinema with darker storylines. Um, Cape Fear is another one that is really scary, but it wouldn't be Seb Gre- uh, Gregory Peck and also um, the same person who leads A Night of the Hunter. They they both star in that movie. But that wouldn't be seven years until we get Cape Fear, which is pretty darn scary as well. And also we wouldn't get Psycho for probably another five years. Right. Now, I'm sure you can probably answer this question for me, but had there ever been a quote-unquote scary movie? Now, this one isn't necessarily considered a horror movie, uh, but is there ever been a movie that's been kind of set in this kind of a way where it's set more in the average American home in trying to be more of a suspense thriller, suspense thriller or a horror movie before this had come out? See, I don't believe so. I think this was pretty much one of the first movies to spawn the... I don't think it knew it was doing it at the time, but the home invasion subgenre, which we've seen right. plenty of nowadays right. and which are, you know, far more disturbing than this, I think, just to just for the sheer purpose of disturbing people for most of the time. But no, I really don't think so. Right. That's why um, The Night of the Hunter came out the same year as well. And that one is pretty menacing as well. And uh, like I said, we wouldn't get Psycho or Cape Fear. Uh, for a number of years as well. So I think this is really one of the first where, uh, okay. yeah, it's kind of that home invasion thing. And uh, it's actually loosely based off true events. I'm, uh, I'm not sure if you knew that. I didn't know that until I looked it up. But apparently in 1952, on September 11th and 12th, there was a Hill family living in Pennsylvania, and they were held hostage in their home for 19 hours. And from what I understand, the events of this movie and the events of the book and then the real life events were fairly similar, but of course certain elements were fictionalized. And something interesting about the real story, apparently Life magazine wrote an article about it, even staging photos in the residence 
where the family was held hostage because they had moved out of their that home by then, moved to a different state. Uh, but the family then sued their parent company, Time Incorporated, um, and the case, I think, nearly went to the Supreme Court because Life Magazine completely embellished the story and said uh, it was – they just, like I said, extremely embellished it. And they said that's really not what happened. The people that held us hostage, they really weren't that hostile to us and they weren't like swearing at us and uh, beating us and things like that, kind of like what we see here in this movie. So – Okay. That's, I mean, that's kind of, I read that too, and I was wondering, maybe this could have even been like the beginning, the actual beginning, just because of the story that happened in real life of the home invasion uh, movie genre, I guess you could say. Or I guess it would be considered a subgenre. Yeah, and that's what I thought as well. And I thought, you know, this was a much simpler time back then. Yeah, there was uh, crime clearly going on and people breaking right. in and getting murdered and horrible things like that. But not really uh, based – they're really just – I don't think there was much to base these stories off of like there is today. There was no BTK and uh, no crazy scary things and uh, the public just really wasn't up for that. I mean TV was you know the Andy Griffith show, Leave it to Beaver, I Love Lucy, things like that. And if I'm not mistaken, some of the exterior shots of the home were some of Leave it to Beaver. Okay. And I know that even at this time, too, uh, TV was relatively new at this point. It had just entered the household. And even if you had money to get one, uh, it was relatively new with only three channels and those shows that you that you mentioned. But at the same time, too, you also have the fact that we are and now in this day and age, we're a bit more secure. We it's become a normal thing to lock your door. Uh, and do that kind of a do that kind of a thing on a, a normal basis. Back then, you usually didn't do that as often. It was the community was considered to be a lot more safe then than it is now. Which is, I would even say, makes this movie for that time even a bit more scarier because your door is typically always open for the most part. Uh, you and it, it, you don't always lock things as much as you would a few years down the road like where oh, we yeah happened. i completely agree and i even made a, a note of that here because when my dad was growing up he told me they left their doors unlocked all the time they slept with their windows open right. they didn't have air conditioning so be pretty hot if you didn't and they even left their car keys in the car unlocked so mm -hmm. yeah uh, and also just think at the time there was no such thing as as far as I know, especially not in the modern sense, a home security system. Yeah, that would be more or less a dog. Other than that, right. <laughs> other than that, there was no ADT back in 1955. Yeah, and you know what? Honestly, today you turn on the news and it is scarier than honestly anything you can go see at the theater. At least that's what I think so. And that really wasn't the case back then. So right. it's a completely different world. So I'm trying to look at it through, you know, 1950s eyes or even before then people, you know, were a kid growing up born in the 40s or even earlier. So this would have been extremely frightening for audiences back then, especially because it's just a random suburban neighborhood. Right. And then they just get held hostage just like that and... They very well could all be murdered or horrible things done to them. So, yeah, for the time, a very uh, frightening, disturbing movie. Right. And like I said, uh, the the stage play, it did actually go to Broadway. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah, so that's pretty big if your play makes it to Broadway, but Joseph Hayes must have been pretty uh pretty good with what he was able to do because <sighs> his novel came out in 1954, the Broadway play came out February 1955, and then the movie came out October 5th of all things October. I don't think October back then was known for for scary movies, but that came out in 1955, and the Broadway play actually won the Tony for best play and best director. Oh wow, that's a pretty big deal then. Oh, yeah. It is. Well, are we ready to get into the plot? I think so. All right, listeners, we will be spoiling the Desperate Hours, so if you don't want the Desperate Hours spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and rent and watch the movie, or purchase it, and then come back and click play, and we'll be ready to talk about it. Dan, played by Frederick March who apparently was like a big actor back then. He was like a really big deal. Ellie, played by Martha Scott. Cindy, played by Mary Murphy. And Ralphie, or Ralph, as he prefers, played by Richard Eyre, comprise the loving suburban Hilliard family. They're a well-off, carefree, optimistic family. The young Ralph wants to be a man, and Cindy wants to be a woman, married to her love, Chuck Wright, played by Gig Young. Little do they know, they're going to grow up all too fast when three escaped convicts Glenn Griffith, played by Humphrey Bogart, Hal Griffith, his younger brother, played by Dewey Martin, and Sam Kobish, played by Robert Middleton, escape prison and decide their home is the perfect place to hide out. Over the next 36 hours, the family will struggle to stay on the good side of three very temperamental, very violent men. Meanwhile, Sheriff Deputy Jesse Bard, played by Arthur Kennedy, Worries he must get Griffith before Griffith gets him, because years earlier, Griffith vowed to murder Bard for slashing his gun across his face, permanently scarring him. The family learns Griffith will leave them alone once his girlfriend Helen brings them a large sum of cash for them to escape out of Indiana. Only problem is, Helen never comes because the police try and arrest her for running a red light. So Griffith and his gang hang around for a while longer, despite the warnings of his younger brother. After a few unsuccessful escape attempts along with some surprise visitors, one of which results in their death, the group grow more desperate, so much so that Hal wants out because he doesn't want to be an accessory to Kobish's murder. Hal leaves but soon stops by a nearby diner to warn his brother the police have narrowed their search to the section of Indianapolis where his brothers hold up. While trying to make the call, Hal's nerves get the best of him when two policemen walk in. He shoots one, but they shoot him twice in the back where he collapses on the road and is crushed by a semi-truck. The gun Hal used to shoot the officer actually belongs to the Hilliards. The police trace the gun to the Hilliards where they learn the convicts are hiding. Chuck is worried about Cindy, so he is able to get her out of the house, and shortly after, Dan shoves Kobish out the front door where he's gunned down. But before they can deal with Griffith, he takes little Ralphie hostage, threatening to blow his brains out. Thankfully, Dan had a plan before entering the house. He brought with him an unloaded gun. The very gun now pointed at his son's head. Commanding his son to trust him and run for it, Ralphie runs which prompts Griffith to shoot, but nothing comes out of the chamber. Now with Griffith in Dan's power, Dan contemplates killing Griffith, which he earlier promised to do but decides it is better to follow due process and let the police apprehend him. In a last-ditch effort, Griffith runs into the front yard, using the unloaded gun to smash out a light 
to hopefully escape the machine gun fire, but he's not so lucky, instead dying a violent death. With all the convicts dead and the tranquility of the family restored, the Hilliard family, including Chuck, return to their home safe and sound as credits roll. I think of the four that we've had, that we've talked about now, this is easily the most simple plot. Yes, it is the most simple of the Bart plots, especially when comparing it to the Maltese Falcon or yeah. even Casablanca. The Maltese Falcon was so complex. I'm not sure. I'm wondering even if the Big Sleep is more complex than the Maltese Falcon because I heard the writers of the Big Sleep got, they even got confused writing it halfway <laughs> through. And oh, no. that's what one of my professors told me and in film class. So, yes, but this one is straightforward. Leave it to Beaver family is terrorized by murderer convicts. It's a nightmare. I can't believe audiences who would come in to see this movie and they're just used to such tranquility. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, this could happen to me. You know? Right. Um, right. And, and I we just, were just talking about that in the background. We were just like, there. this would have been a bit more impactful back in the day because you don't usually think that this thing would ever happen per se you don't ever lock your door yeah and i th i think the setup actually makes sense for why the criminals choose their home because we know griffith yeah. is actually a fairly smart guy he's fairly calculating and we kind of have uh, more of a battle of the wits going on between um griffith and between bogart's character and frederick march's character and Griffith basically explains, because uh, Dan says, why did you choose my house? And he says, because I saw you had a bike in the front yard and people with kids don't take risks. And I'm like, ah, right. that's a good point. Right. And in, like you just said, this is, when you really break it down, really strip away a lot of the things here, it's basically just two people, two men just trying to outsmart each other. And one of the most famous lines that comes from this movie is clickety, clickety, click. Uh, from Bogart's character when he's talking about the dad. He knows the dad's thinking. And for, for, throughout the, basically the whole, mil, the whole film, these two guys are just trying to outsmart each other. Dad's trying to escape. And uh, Bogart's character is trying to uh, trying to stay inside and keep everybody inside while the getaway car and the money arrives. It's not necessarily something that's meant to be... It really isn't anything that's all that violent. Uh, it's very much a psychological game throughout like most of this movie. Yeah, there are kind of bouts of violence where, uh, especially when uh, Kobish takes Ralphie and he's like about to Bane, yeah, break his back like Bane did to Batman, <laughs> and he like slams him on the couch. That was wild. Yeah, <laughs> and um, uh, Cindy gets slapped across the face when she's biting. Hal and Hal gets gunned down and run over and then they get all machine gunned up at the end and right. we see a close-up of uh, the gun to Ralphie's head, which is kind of disturbing. And so there's like things like that. But yeah, like you said, um, also the the trash guy gets mm -hmm. shot up also. Other than that, it is mostly psychological. Right. And it is actually also kind of surprising that they had Ralphie twice, I think, had a gun pointed at him. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and lots of talk of, we're going to shoot the kids, uh, which yeah. is, for the time, I mean, it's rather, it's pushing it for the time. Of course, we know as the audience that nothing's going to come with it, especially there at the very end when uh, when the gun is pointed at 
Ralphie on one of the last scenes. You know, at least at that point, that there's nothing in the chamber. Uh, but for the time, it's pushing it a bit to have kids being have have having them have guns being pointed at them. Oh yeah, and even uh, there's a there's quite a bit of sexual tension in this movie, mm-hmm. where the young daughter Cindy, she's very young and beautiful. These men have been locked up for a long time. Uh, Howell is a good-looking guy also, and Griffith is like, you know, we're going to just kidnap this girl, and she can be like your concubine for, <laughs> you know, whatever. And right. uh, kind of gets pushed into her, like his body against hers, and especially that scene where Cindy comes home and Kobish is drunk, and he has those lustful eyes, and he's kind of like, I want her... So that that put me on edge, even, you know, in 2018 yeah. um, with kind of that tension because, you know, that is really troubling. And so I, I and if we've seen more things than audiences have seen in 1950. Oh, I can't even imagine how uh, stressed out they were. Oh, yeah. And I think that that scene with Kobish is probably the most poignant scene of what you just mentioned with the sexual tension in between in this movie, that's probably the one where it's just where it makes you probably the most uneasy, at least with uh, Hal, you know, that he's kind of going also with this teen angst thing, which just becomes a big thing later on. Yeah. Uh, and he's his, it's really just uh, Bogart's character telling him, Oh, you should take her dancing. You know, and it's really about as far as it goes. And that he's honestly trying, almost trying to protect her. Yeah, he is. But with Kobish, he just is always very, very sketchy, and especially in that one scene when she comes home. It, it makes it probably one of the most uneasy scenes in the entire movie, just in terms of you don't know where this is going to go. And he begins with the first time, the first shot you see in the inside of Kobish, he's a complete silhouette, and he steps into the light. It's quite a spooky scene. Oh, yeah, it really is. It's really effective with that lighting. And Kobish is probably the most disturbing character because he's this six foot three brute, weighs 260 pounds. He's really violent and temperamental. He would be really hard to overpower and stop. All right, so I do want to talk about the beginning here for just a little bit because I was thought I thought it was interesting uh, the font titles and they're quite dark. Their names are over this you know black background and kind of this boisterous, menacing or orchestral score. Right. Yeah, and I think that's kind of I know in the opening I kind of mentioned this, uh, but that's. This is, I think, the one piece I don't like at all in this composition is the opening piece. Not a big fan of it at all. Mm. Uh, now, I do like the visuals, like one for one thing, the text. But then when it shows the when it shows the actual uh, neighborhood, it kind of gives you this uneasy feeling because yes. it's a very high angle and it's going quite slow and fast enough. It's going slow enough where kids on bikes can just ride past it, not a problem at all. And then, of course, it ends up on the house that we're going to be focusing on, the Hilliard's house. Uh, in terms of visuals, it's it does a really good job. In terms of music, not a big fan of the music yeah. here. I would say this kind of opening scene is very Lynchian, which is kind of saying that in reverse, because I'm particularly thinking of Blue Velvet by David Lynch, which opens with this very tranquil suburban setting, and then the movie you kind of see the seedy underside of everything. And that's exactly what this right. movie does is it's showing you this could be your neighborhood. See, all the kids are riding their bikes, you know, it's really nice. And we get to meet the family. They got a cute kid and a daughter who 
I, I at first I thought she was in high school, but I'm I'm pretty sure she's already graduated. Yeah, she is not going to school with her brother, which I would assume they'd be at the same time, maybe yes. at the same school, but at least around the same time. So I'm assuming she's probably in college. They never really state where exactly she's at in her education, but that's just kind of what I'm guessing is college because she does ride with her dad um, to wherever she's going. But yeah. Yeah, and I was a little surprised the parents are quite a bit older than their children, especially the father and son. There's a really big age gap there. At least it yeah. looks that way. But I'm wondering if that's because they tried to base it off maybe the real people or I don't know. But I do think the cast works really well together. I would say Oh yeah. Um the f- the father, son and daughter are great. The mom is fine. Yeah, I mean, they at least feel yes. like a real family. Uh, you get the banter between the the son and daughter, uh, you know, by which, uh, what is Dream it, Dream Witch. witch. Um, <laughs> yep. And she responds with goodbye, yeah, I love pest. Uh, you get this brother-sister banter, uh, and then this interesting uh, little tidbit that Ralph doesn't kiss his dad, but instead wants to shake his hand, and his dad's like, what's yeah. this about? Uh, yeah, and you get the sense hear that these kids are acting older than they than you would I guess typically think of them uh once again Ralphie doesn't kiss his dad and he's like he's kind of acting a bit more older than what he is and the mom and dad are even talking about marriage when it comes to their daughter even though she's just as a boyfriend and there's nothing anywhere past that with them but yeah you get this sense right pretty early on like the first scene here that these kids are going to be a bit older or maybe act a bit more mature than what their age really is right I thought the same thing and I did think that was pretty cute when he wanted to shake his dad's hand because he wants to be a man yeah um we do right. get a uh, okay we get kind of this introduction to this what I would more so say is a side plot until it finally comes into play really importantly at the very end. And that is Sheriff Deputy Jesse Bard. And we learned that a few years ago, Glenn Griffith shot a police officer. He was already cornered and he's like, you know what? I'm going to murder a cop just because I want to do it. And then that apparently made Jesse Bard so mad. He slashed his gun across his face and Griffin vowed to get even with him, which I can't help but think of the Andy Griffith episode. I'm going to get you for this deputy. But I'm kind of disappointed because they're kind of setting up this showdown between the two and it never factors in later and it never happens. Right. Yeah, they never – I never got the sense that they were setting up a showdown between them, more just trying to get a way to get the police involved somehow through a bit more means than just there's an investigation, people are dying. Uh, but you are correct. They do still, to a certain degree, set up something between Bard and uh, and Glenn Griffith or Grin Glenn Griffin, uh, where there seems to be like he's going to have an like gri- where Bard is going to have some kind of arc, uh, and he's going to end up taking down. He's going to be the one who takes down Griffin there towards the end. Which that never really comes to fruition. It's really just more for the police to get involved with the case and that there's a bit more of a personal side to it as well when it comes to when it comes to Bard's character. It at least gives him a more purpose than what just having the police there out of nowhere uh, or just there to be an ex machina there towards the end. At least it is that much, but you're correct. They don't really do anything with that storyline arc or storyline tidbit. Yeah, you're right. It does bring, it gives us a 
a reason to bring this police officer in and have him his story kind of run parallel and then come together there at right. the very end. I'm just disappointed in the first act they're saying Griffith vowed to get even with him. Griffith never even brings this person up. Um, now that he's escaped, that seems to be the furthest thing from his mind is getting revenge on Jesse Barr. He just wants to get the money and essentially get out of there. So to me, that seemed kind of like right. a needless introduction or just kind of it, it just really brought it up for no reason because they completely dropped it and did nothing with it. So I was kind of surprised they did that. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, well, so what do you, I want to know what your thoughts were with the shot of Bogart's hand. It's just a shot of Bogart's hand resting on the door, and we can just see out of his car window as they're cruising along the neighborhood, deciding which house to pick. I thought that was a great shot. Yeah, and it really is a great shot. And there's a lot of great shots in the interior of the house, too, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But yeah, it, it, once again, it's kind of like the opening of the film where it's moving along rather slowly. And at least this time you have some kind of human element to it where you have Bogart's hand on the side of the car. Uh, at the time, you don't know it was Bogart until he walks up to the door, front door. But you get this sense. You know immediately who these characters are uh, and what they're doing here because of partly because of the police scene before and the radio broadcast uh, that was kind of setting up all of this. But yeah, you really get this uneasy feeling that you know that they're going to end up probably at, most likely at the uh, house that we've been focusing on. It does make the scene rather uneasy because it's so soon. This happens no more than seven minutes in, they're already in the house. And essentially from then on, things begin to transspire. Uh, and they don't really leave the house only a few times. I thought it was an interesting choice for them to jump into having them, you know, kind of uh, be in the same environment so quickly. Them getting into the house, like yeah. you said, it takes no more than seven minutes. And then for the entire family to come home and start big confrontations with all of them, we're barely 20 minutes into the movie. And things have escalated really quickly. Right. They... Right, they don't take, they don't, they don't waste any time getting things to start. And I'm wondering if maybe they should have taken uh, slightly, just a little more time before all of this like came about so fast. Because I will say, probably the second act, probably towards the end of the second act, I feel like there's a bit of a dip where it feels like they're stretching the story a little just to kind of fit the runtime. Either they could have maybe just like trimmed some of that up a bit where he has to go get Kobish and then the police detectives find the trash man's body and then they set up shop in the back of a kitchen. And yeah, yeah some, some of that I yeah. felt like was kind of stretching things a bit before we got to the final showdown. I don't know. What do you think? See the the fact that they didn't really waste didn't really take the time as I guess what you would typically see to build up uh, really anybody until it's already happened when that that is when the uh, three criminals actually break into the house or I guess just kind of end up at the house uh, they didn't waste any time and I think that that's actually for my in my own my in my own opinion is to its advantage because it really you would assume that naturally they would try and set up a lot of the stuff before they show it but in this case they set up to except to i guess a baseline and then go right for it and it really catches you off guard now and it comes to there towards the end of the movie there i guess there are a couple of things that i do kind of wish they would kind of uh shorten up a bit 
uh, or maybe even cut out because maybe you're right, this does kind of go on for maybe a bit too long before it gets the end showdown. But at the same time, at least nothing here is worthless. It's just, I guess, filler at times. The scene in the restaurant, I can get the 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 police tend to, I don't know, we know what the rules were back then. Uh, I know now that when it becomes like a state of emergency, usually schools are the first thing that are set up for camps when it comes to like military stuff. But uh, in terms of them being in the restaurant, it's an interesting choice, but nothing I'm really too worried about. But my only concern there is that the boyfriend Chuck comes in and then starts for some reason avoiding the question that the police officer knows that he has the answer to. Uh, and we know that he has the answer to, but for some reason to avoids it but I mean that's kind of there towards the end. I don't know. It doesn't really bother. It didn't really bother me. Cindy all that and much, Chuck's kind of roll together in this movie. I found some of it to be kind of annoying, a little tedious, because the amount of times we see him drive up to their house within the span of like thirty six hours, and like drive there and drive back, and then he drives to her dad, and then he figures out where their command post was. I guess. I don't know. Chuck just pops up a lot, and uh, he yeah. we know that there's some tension between the dad and Chuck, which I don't know why, because apparently he's a lawyer and he's super successful, and that really threw me off because at first I thought Cindy was like in high school or something, and then she gets in the car with this much older man, and I'm thinking, well, I can see the problem here, Yeah, but I guess not. Yeah. That was my first thought, too, is that while he looks <laughs> way older than she does, she looks ar- around 17, 19. He looks know, like he's yeah, 30. that was surprising. So, But, I mean, I do like that yeah. Chuck serves the purpose of getting Cindy out of the house. At first, I was a little confused what was going on. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, wait, he's he's getting her out. And it's a pretty funny scene where he opens the door and he peeks his head in. And then Kobish, like, pushes the door, like close the door and uh you you can tell on chuck's face he can tell somebody's pushing against the door like nobody would notice that right right that's kind of what i was thinking too i think that he i know at, at this point i'm sure that he knows that there's a guy behind the door uh and i'm sure he knows that there are people nearby but but yeah he he's a very interesting character um it's clear that there's a lot of drama between uh the two of them the opening of the movie, she states to her dad that they had a fight uh, there a few about, I think the day before we all, we, they have the conversation. Uh, and then of course the whole movie happens and it's just emotions are kind of flying everywhere, but probably due to the fact that there are people in their house. But yeah, Chuck, just in general, Chuck is a very, very interesting character. Just and I would agree with you. I want to jump back for just a minute. I do agree with you. I do like that this movie jumps into the plot because that's what we needed to grab our attention I don't think we really needed to spend right. more time than we do on these characters. The breakfast table scene is well enough because we just get an immediate sense of what's going on in their lives and we can kind of we can relate to one of them in some way or another. And regardless, I guess if you can't relate, then you can at least have some kind of empathy for this family that just seems really nice and they're just trying to do the right thing. And right. we know these people that break in are murderers. And uh, I got to say, it was a frightening scene when uh, Griffin Griffith rings the doorbell and then she opens the door and they're chatting. And then all of a sudden, just like Kobish comes from the side. Uh, I'm like, how did yep. he get in there? Yep. It's, it's, it's yeah, it, that's exactly what I had, was saying, too, when I saw this scene, because, I mean, of, of course, they have a garage door, but it's or I guess a side door. 
but it's just it's kind of like when you, especially now you know not really expecting that to happen but back then once again doors are never locked so he just kind of could walk right in uh and so you're not for now at least you're not expecting him to be in or at least anyone else to be in so quick and with before they can even finish their sentence uh griffin kobe is already inside and yeah it's a pretty spooky scene because right then from then on it's just kind of this really te- it becomes really really tense uh because you once again, they kind of say early on that if anybody calls the police or anything bad goes wrong, somebody in the family is going to get shot. Uh, and they bring that up multiple times. And so the, the stakes are, are made relatively quick uh, as to what's going to happen if the family missteps. Uh, relatively quick, this is all made pretty clear. The dangers and the stakes are I wonder are your hand. thoughts when Kobish, who has this very childlike mentality of wanting to play with toy guns and planes... And then when Ralph comes downstairs and he's upset that somebody messed up his plane, Kobish wants it. And Ralph's trying to run away from him. So he kicks the couch, pinning him when you can see the boy's scared. Right. And then the boy smashes it. And I really like that. He'd rather break it than give it to Kobish. And Kobish picks him up and he's going to just chuck him across the room. Were you shocked? I was a bit shocked because... Yeah, you're right. Kobish is a very much a is, has a very big child mentality to him, where uh, he's not, I guess, all there all the time. And this gets even worse when he has a bottle of wine to drink. He he actually becomes dangerous. But yeah, it, it for one also goes to show that the kids here are very strong and they're acting maybe more adult than the adults are at times. But at the same time, it also goes to shut up. It goes to set up how dangerous he's going to become later on and how much of a threat he'll become to this entire operation uh, and to the family as well. It, it's, it, in some sense, it's kind of funny because this kid, this guy just picks up this kid and throws him down on the couch. Uh, but it's also kind of scary because he's he takes he wastes no time in getting there to that kid and picking him up and about to break him. So it does do a really good job at setting up both Kobish's like shortcomings, but at the same time, Kobish is and how dangerous he can become and how strong he actually is and what he's going and what he's able to do. Uh, one of the interesting lines that really does kind of even further the stakes of this movie is despite Griffith being more or less rational, Dan does say to him, You can't blame us. Like if something goes wrong and the police do, you can't blame us. And Griffin says, I can do anything I want. Right. Showing that don't be so easy to trust this, you know, smooth talking guy who does keep some level of sensibility to the group. And his brother Hal is even more sensible. And I do wish we, I don't know how they would probably implement it, but I wish we had maybe a little more dialogue between them or a little more interplay between them. Because I think their relationship in this movie is really fascinating. One of the lines Hal says to his older brother is because his older brother is saying, I taught him everything he knows. I'm so proud of him, you know, and Hal, like, uh, you taught me everything except how to live in a house like this. And then you see Griffith frown and then right. later on it kind of comes to like, what are we doing? Like, uh, I we're just missing out on life. Like, this is what we're doing with our lives. It's, it's utterly 
pointless and we're just we're going to go to jail because of Kobish and we're going to you know actually get the death penalty so I do think those exchanges of interplay are interesting I just wish we possibly could have had a little more throughout the movie but I don't know if that would have been possible because there is a lot of just kind of scrambling desperation trying to escape trying to do this and that and I think that's probably better to hold the audience's attention that way yeah, and just in a general sense, this movie isn't really all that deep, uh, which is not really meant to be either. It's that's just how it is. It's meant to be more of a ten, it's more it's meant to be more tension building than it is trying to be more of a character piece, I guess you could say, uh, or really anything past just a general sense of understanding. And this one, y- even with the opening scene with the family, you don't get much character building between the three, the four characters that are present. You get a really quick sense as to this is where we are at. It's meant to play on similarities. You know this kind of a setting. You probably live in this kind of a setting on a daily basis. That's kind of what's going for. And then here when the criminals come in, uh, it kind of is some, somewhat similar thing where you get a general sense of these characters. But and they now that's not to say that they are cliche characters, but that they're just not necessarily anything that they're that is very deep. You get a general sense, a general empathetic sense between all these characters, but that's really all you get. And once again, that's just kind of maybe kind of both good and bad, as you were saying. It's good because then that allows the movie to create a lot of tension and you don't really need to set up a lot of things and make sure that you keep things in check. But at the same time, you don't get very deep characters. You don't really get to understand them. And that's also kind of the point, too. They're just criminals. Not even the family understands these characters that come into their house. Their house for uh, 19 hours, according to the uh, to the actual event that happened. So I do agree that, to a certain extent, I guess I could say, that there would have been, it would have been nice to have more building with all these characters that are in this house. Because there are a number of them. And they're... Shadow is kind of a bad word to say because it kind of has a negative negative connotation to it with it, but that is kind of the whole thing about it. Uh, But at the same time, totally understand why, because there really is no time to to sit down and have a very short, a very longer scene explaining things or diving deeper into these characters because then you lose all your attention at that point. Right, and on the other side of it, we have to focus on the family as well. And I would say right. there is some really great interplay between the family and some some nice moments as well, and like between the father and son. The son, we know he wants to be a man, and then when he sees his dad not just slugging these guys and just taking control of the situation and kicking them out of the house, he doesn't really understand, and that's because of this very childlike mentality, which I think they capture very well, that confusion right. and just really concern and worry. And then we also see that those same feelings, but from the father's side as well. And he tries to explain it to the son where he's like, it's okay to be afraid sometimes. And I won't let them hurt you when it comes down to it. But you have to be smart and think about this stuff and not just, uh, you know, just fight people that have guns and you don't have a gun. Right. I think that's well handled. Right. And I really, yeah. And I really do enjoy this because it's kind of the opposite of at least at the time what things were like usually the man is the one who provides and protects the family just outright the female the mother usually doesn't have a job around this time that's just how the culture was then uh so seeing the father kind of not really get his hands dirty in the situation is kind of opposite compared to 
what you normally see in this kind of a situation. You normally would see the dad, like you were saying, like the, even Ralphie was saying, slugging those guys and getting them out of his house. He can't, he's literally, he literally can't do that in fear of his own family getting hurt or even getting killed at the worst of it. Uh, it's very, very interesting that we chose to do this because, like I said, you normally never see something like this. It's always the man uh, who is who's the one who becomes the one who wins in the situation. That's just, once again, how it is. But it's just very interesting that they chose not to do this. And uh, they, like I, I mentioned this earlier, Ralphie feels more like, maybe even more like a male figure in a sense than his own father does, where he's willing to do all kinds of stuff. And at one point even gets out of the house and tries to escape, but of course is caught. Uh, it really shows that, uh, not necessarily to say that the father isn't a kind of a man, but more the fact that he's in an impossible situation where he can't do the thing that he wants to do, which is to protect his family as much as he can. Yeah, Frederick March gives a great performance here, and especially with a oh, yeah. lot of the expressions that he relates on his face, particularly towards the end when he's trying to write the note and the police are coming, just this always this consternation of what can I do, what should I do? How do I protect my family? And but how do I also, you know, uh, kind of appease these men that are are in my house? He's really caught between a rock and a hard place. And I think uh, his character, Dan Hilliard, gives a great portrayal of masculinity where he will do anything to protect his family. But he also uh, just isn't going to fall in line with this. Uh, just macho attitude because usually those people that do are the ones that end up messing up the situation and it's it's a it's a lesson for his whole family to see like how will my parents act in this situation and i will say i do despite i think the wife giving an okay performance i think her character is really great though because of how much she wants to protect her family and she will put herself in harm's way, or she will do this or that to protect them. And I do got to say, I love how the, this family uh, does their best to work together to protect each mm-hmm. other. You can tell they really do care about each other. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I do also like the fact that this one, I think we kind of mentioned this earlier, but it's very much a brains versus brawn kind of situation because the criminals here not not to say that they are completely resorting to violence but they are a bit more they are a lot more violent than the family is and the dad as we were just talking about he's thinking more than he is acting he's trying to think of what the best way of best course of action would be for the situation to make sure that my family does not get hurt uh while also trying to remain the protector of the family uh, just in a very different way, uh, what the culture was saying. And yeah, you are very correct. The mother here, even still, is, plays a very, is, is quite still a, a strong character because she tries to still a, protect the family, but at the same time is also thinking along the along lines with her, with her husband, although not, maybe not to the same extent that he does. Uh, it's interesting that even the daughter, the mother and daughter, although I wouldn't say that they're the strongest characters, they are still quite strong characters in the story. One of the most, probably one of my most favorite scenes in this movie is when uh, uh, Kobish is drunk like we already mentioned. But then after that, um, when the daughter pretends to faint. Yes. I wasn't sure. I couldn't remember if she really had fainted or not. But then she bites his hand, which I thought was a really, you know, brave move. And they throw, they like, uh, the dad tackles him and throws him out of the house and... 
at this point, uh, because Kobish was drunk, he's like, I'm just going to leave and Griffith has to go out there and knock him out. So at this point, everybody's out of the house. And then they're like, where's Ralph? Where's Ralphie? And then come to find out he's outside uh, because he's like, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going right. to solve this problem. And he ends up ruining the whole thing. I had forgot he was captured. I thought that was just an all around great scene. Yeah. And it's not like something that comes out of nowhere that Ralphie had uh, disappeared at all because once again, they had kind of set this up earlier that he could hop down from the house and the dad that, that in that scene where he reveals it, he goes, I told you never to do that. You know? And then in the scene, you're like, okay, we finally got them. Wait, where's Ralphie? And then right when that, right when you think that you hear Ralphie yell for help from outside and you go, crap, because you know that he's out there and he's now captured by Griffin. Uh, and they were, it's one of those things, this happens a couple more times, but they were just so close, so close to getting everyone out of their house. And then of course there's the, the one thing that just goes wrong. And he kind of even goes to show uh, what the dad was saying to his son before, before he, his son actually listened to him, that you need to think like, you need to think like a man, you need to think wisely, then act before, uh, before you really thought through anything through. Uh, which comes to show even here, I guess you could say. And it's right after this scene where they eventually have to let Griffith back in and everybody else back in because he's holding the gun to his son's head out in the out right. in bushes, which is, I think, is pretty well framed. And uh, Griffith comes back in and yells, you couldn't wait. You still don't know who's running this show. And that's what I put in my notes. Now I feel like Bogart's really embracing this character. I was waiting for him to cut loose a little more because he still is. I felt like he was still being a bit of a similar character to what we've seen before, uh, probably particularly in, um, I would almost say, the Maltese Falcon, where he is a little more sophisticated. He's kind of the anti-hero. He, uh, you can't really trust him and whatnot. I, I just feel like he wasn't getting into his role as much as he could have, and I felt like this is the point where... Uh, I accept him as Glenn Griffith. Yeah, and this scene is probably one of the more pivotal ones because, once again, they come really, really close. But then, yeah, you really get that performance, that one thing that really solidifies how desperate, I guess you could say, that Griffin is uh, when it comes to the situation because he needs to get out of there. He really wants to get out of there really, really bad. And it's only going to be for a few hours that this family doesn't want that to happen. And part of it is that the dad thinks that we found out this a bit later on. The dad thinks that he's going to be taken with them when they leave, and he doesn't want that to happen. But yeah, you're right. This is probably the scene when uh, when Bogart really steps into that character. And this is kind of, for me at least, this is the scene from here and up until the end where his character becomes very, very interesting to me because he's more than just a criminal. He has maybe not, maybe not you're supposed to, you know, maybe you're not really supposed to agree with everything that he's doing or the reasons why he's here, but that's also kind of the point. He's an antagonist, but he's, he's more than just a criminal. He's got his brother that he's caring for, which we find out, especially there towards the end when they have that conversation when Hal wants to leave, you really get this sense kind of the same as the father, maybe a little bit where he's kind of the parent figure of his brother. Uh, and it's really interesting to see those, those two con contrast each other as well. Uh, yeah, you're right. This is one of those scenes. It's probably one of the better scenes of the movie because you really get to see everything. You get to see, I guess the stakes of how far they are willing to push it. If it needs to go there. So how are you feeling about cutting back and forth between the detective or the detective storyline? I 
not that I don't like it because once again, it at least gives a great purpose or I bet a bigger purpose to the uh, to the police force in this story because you do get you do as the audience is kind of those things where it's audience knowledge. Uh, you get to see the progression of the cases. They make their way from one clue to the next until they finally catch up to Griffin in the household. Uh, so it isn't bothering me too much. I understand why it's there, and at least it's edited very well. So it makes sense why they cut in and out between uh, the police and then back to the family. Uh, but they are there, and I once again do kind of wish they had a, a much bigger purpose or maybe maybe explored uh, or explained it a bit better than what they gave. I'm wondering if they put it in the movie so much to kind of be a counterpoint to what most people had expected from detective movies or detective serials at the time where the mystery was very easy to solve and it was just clearly an ABC type of mystery whereas this they really don't have any idea they have right. nowhere they have, to look yeah yeah they have like no hardly any clues there at the beginning except that the fact that they know that Griffin is escaped it's about as far as it goes and i guess it kind of plays to it's not just the it, all three sides, the criminals, the family, and the detectives, they're all extremely desperate to achieve one thing or another, and it's very difficult for them to do it. And only through either a series of just slip-ups or mistakes, then do they start to unravel the mystery. So I'm kind of wondering if, because usually at the time you don't see this in detective plots, it's pretty easy for them to solve the mystery. They are they have no idea. They're just like, oh, we'll just check every single car that comes in and out of Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we're, we're getting nowhere. And that's what the other policemen tell him. They're like, you can't do this. This is crazy. And uh, so in that sense, I do like it. Uh, I guess if I think about it a little more, I do. But I will say while watching the movie, I wasn't too invested in their plot until the end when it all kind of really comes to the boiling point. Yeah, I, I can definitely see where you're coming with that. Uh, I mean, once again, I think that it's necessary, but I, I do kind of wish that there was a bit more of a good, a bit, I guess a bit, bit of a better reason. Maybe if they had fulfilled that at the end where they actually have the showdown between Griffin and Bard, uh, where he actually kills him, maybe that would have made it all worth it there at the end. But that also could have very well have been a detriment to the story as well. Yeah, I will say I... I- I would have preferred the detective at least showing his face maybe, or at least saying Griffith, this is blah, 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 whatever his name, Jesse Bard, uh, you know, and then that probably would have spurred Griffith to run out of the house, chuck the light and try and escape or something that would have tied that together up a bit better. I'm kind of surprised they didn't do that at all, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in, in some sense, it probably could take it away from the focus because it really is just about the family for the most part. So possibly yeah. uh, I will say there is a little bit of humor in this movie, uh, especially at the breakfast scene, uh, which is a pretty funny scene, oh, yes. actually, where uh, Griffith says, drink up your milk, Sonny, so you can grow up to be big and strong like daddy. And Ralphie just downs the whole glass of milk. And then... He says something to the wife, which causes her to slap him. And then Ralphie starts pounding on his chest. And he's like, why don't you pick on someone your own size? And Griffith is like, oh, the whole family is getting tough. 
He's like, I'm being yep. attacked from all sides today. And then he just starts <laughs> laughing. I loved that part. Yeah, and one interesting thing again about the scene is the dad who's it's the dad who's the one who pulls mom and the son away. Yeah, <laughs> once this kind of goes to the thing that I said earlier, where the dad is just an interesting character all the way around because you usually don't see fathers or men in this kind of role do this kind of a thing. It is just kind of funny that he was the one who pulls him away, and makes him stop, and then of course you get the funny line of the whole family's attacking me from all sides from Griffin. So yeah, uh, but you, you get an interesting line from him. In, uh, not long after this, actually, where he says, like, where it kind of, you mentioned kind of something, something about this earlier, where he says, I looked after my own skin. Or, sorry, I play, ple- I take pleasure in looking after my own skin. Oh, yeah. And talking about Hal. Yeah, that that is true. Um, I do like the way that they talk in this movie. Mm-hmm. Nobody talks like this anymore, at least the people that I hang around, and at least what you hear in the movies. Just the way they say it, where they're like, hands off, or... I don't know. They've they've talked this way in almost every Bogart movie, except maybe Casablanca. They really didn't very much, and uh, but just those. I wish I could remember more of those like more colloquial terms of the age. Uh, it's it's kind of nice. It feels less threatening though because now everything. But then on the other side, I'm glad it's not like most dialogue today, where it is just hyper inflated with a barrage of profanity to the point of it losing all meaning and all seriousness. And it's like, who can just yell out the most curse words or the most screaming at once? Uh, This is completely different, but I I like it. Yeah, it is once again, well, I guess once again, but it is kind of a thing where uh, just part of the time, uh, we don't talk like this anymore because we have, we've, we've changed the culture to do other things. Uh, so yeah, it is, well, it's kind of one of those things where you watch like an early 2000s movie and a lot of people, maybe even, maybe some people have frosted tips. You don't really see that as much anymore. That's just a part oh. of the, where the movie came from. Yeah. That was what it was. That's what it was in the time that it was made. But yeah, you're right. It is just kind of interesting. This one, uh, Maltese Falcon is a good one too, with a lot of language that's used in that one, where you get this really big sense of this is a movie not from our time, one that's very much way older than that. Uh, it is nice. It is kind of cool, like you said, to have that kind of language because you you don't ever hear this anywhere else. And we do get kind of a bit of an excursion where Kobish has to ride with the trash man and the trash man decides to be Mr. Brave and like flips the truck. It's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. And Kobish is completely fine despite nobody having seatbelts back then. And right. uh, I got to say that trash man got shot. That was sad. It was really sad because... Uh, it's almost like okay maybe he's going to make it away in that case what would be the point of the scene uh but then he sends uh griffin sends kobish to follow him and then take care of him because uh they don't want anyone they don't want anyone knowing anything about this whole case and then yeah when you see him driving down the road and you kind of just you kind of know that he's probably going to get hurt uh it's just like no don't do this this man's too nice and then he almost escapes, too. He comes really, really close to getting out of the way. And then, of course, by that point, it's too late. And uh, Kobe shoots him three times in the back, which is really... Which is, it's still very sad to see that because we never really get anything about this character. So he just seems like a really nice guy. Yeah, and I will say right here before we begin the final act of the movie, these are nice, realistic layers of uh, of life and intensity. Because life goes on. They can't just 
hole up in the house forever and act like nobody's there. She's like, the trash man comes on this day. And they're like, oh, great. And then I guess back in the day when you missed a day of school, your teacher came and checked up on you. So it's kind of showing when the family removes themselves from life, life's going to come to them and they're going to have to figure out how to protect people or deal with it. It's just becoming increasingly worse and intense, especially if those goes on any longer. So it goes right. to show there's going to be some kind of breaking point. They can't keep this up because more like the body count, uh, one person is already dead. More people are going to, uh, to keep the secret. Right. And yeah, it is also just interesting that they, the, the criminals here like make them go out and act and act in their normal lives still here too, because I guess in a movie that you normally see now, they're just kind of trapped in their own home, and typically it's only for like overnight. Uh, but yeah, it, it makes it even more tense that they have to live life uh, normally and not give out the secret in fear of the family getting hurt. Uh, yeah, it makes it even more intense, I would say, because like you were just saying, it, life still comes to them. They and there's something interesting that they are very engraved with their neighborhood. Uh, the teacher, they don't do this as much anymore. But yeah, the teacher comes and visits them, and then they have to kick her out because dad came home with the guests uh and and stuff like that yeah it does make this even more interesting seeing them come having to force themselves to be composed around other people and but the only way to get the teacher out of the house is for dan to act like semi-drunk and say he like picked up his old friend that he just met from the bar and they're drunk and they're kind of drunk and Sends the teacher away that way, and oh yeah, Ralphie once again trying to save the day writes in his notebook. He's like, "There are men in yep. the house, help!" And right. uh, Dan gets pretty mean. He's like, "Do you let your students write this drivel, or in our terms today, this crap?" So <laughs> it comes across very rude, but it's kind of funny. And then um, uh, Griffith says to Dan, "You would have made a great con man." Uh, and the, then the wife starts crying, and he says, "The crying department's upstairs, lady." Just yep. great dialogue. <laughs> yep, and, and it is long after this where the police catch up with the murder that Kobish did. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting, though, to note because the weapon that Kobish used to kill Mister Patterson is a revolver, and they find bullets on the scene, but. A revolver doesn't expel the casing when it when you pull the trigger. So I wonder what that's all about. Uh, they said something like the gun taken off the prison guard, and or something like that. It's the same kind of uh, like ammunition used for that type of gun. Well, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Oh. Is that the when you okay when and. I looked this up. It's a revolver. Yes. I forget what exactly the make is. But when you pull a trick on the revolver, it doesn't expel the empty casing. It keeps it in the chamber. Right. Because uh, it's a it's a drum. Uh, it's this, it spins. So only when you open it up to reload, then you can pull the empty casings out. It doesn't expel it unless they found somehow the bullet that it went through Mr. Patterson ended up on the ground somewhere, mm. which is unlikely. Uh, but I guess it is possible but they don't explain that and it would be more than just them looking at it on the ground in their bare hand <laughs> to say, oh yeah, it's 38, 38 caliber um, yeah, that's a good before point. they take it into a lab. That's a good point. I didn't really think about it because I don't know much about that stuff, but 
Right. And and I do think that his fellow policemen kind of bring him back down because he's like, oh my gosh, a murder. It must be the Griffith gang. And they're like, right. what? No, we live in Indianapolis. What do you know? It's, we don't know that. Uh, so that's kind right. of funny. Right. I mean, to be fair, it is kind of a small thing because it's a clue, but not the clue, mm-hmm. which is a bit later on when Hal dies, that really gets them to figure out where they're going uh, and where the Griffin, where, Griff, where Glenn Griffin is at. But it is a point that I noticed and I'm just like, hang on a minute, because I, I knew that the gun that they had was a revolver. And yeah. I I don't know very much about guns either, but I looked it up and yeah, they don't. Um, now... That gun does not expel the empty casing automatically. The gun that uh, Hal do- has does. That one, when you pull the trigger, it's automatic. So it, it shoots out the casing, the empty casing, when you pull the trigger. Uh, that one would do that, but not the revolver. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it does. Who knows? But well, uh, that is we, something I noticed when I was watching. It is funny later on, though, like not long after this, when they do, the police do get the note about uh, that Dan writes the, for the police. And they're like, okay, what do we know about this note that was written? And they say, all we know for sure is that the man was wearing clothes. Yep, because the the uh, bellhop was just like, he gave it 13 different descriptions of the man. He's like, yeah, all we know is that he was wearing clothes, which is kind of a funny line. They say it, knows, they say it so nonchalantly that it, yeah. it's just so funny. Yeah, it is. And I got to say, this next scene is probably... One of my other favorite scenes of this movie, I, I don't know if I can pick or not, but it's when Hal gets out of there and he's willing to pull a gun right. on his own brother to get out of there. And uh, the brother again says, you know, I'm so proud of him. I've taught him whatever he wants. And we kind of get the battle of the father figures here where Dan comes down the back stairs as well. And he's saying, no, he doesn't. He didn't teach you anything good because you're in this horrible situation. Right. And um, it's interesting because I, to me, it seems like that Hal gives more respect to Dan because he calls him Mr. Hilliard all the time. He gives him more respect than he ever gave his brother, probably. And I like how Glenn Griffith points that out not long after by kind of mocking saying Mr. Hilliard like he hates how he did that called him that uh and when he escapes and then when he gets to the diner i love the location of the diner i love the setting i think it's great how he unscrews the light bulb and then the cop opens up the door and doesn't even really see him but then the camera pans down and there's a gun and then he escapes i think that was set up really well yeah it really is and i really like how uh Glenn's character responds here because you can tell he does not want to let him go but at the same time he's just like "Ah, maybe I should and then eventually complies and lets him leave even giving him money and says if you need me come find me because you know where I'll be so you can tell that he still very much cares for his brother to a great degree even enough to let him go uh probably because they've already lost they already lost Kobish uh which they'll get back a bit later but it is interesting just in a general sense because it's a bit more complex than just him going, oh, yeah, sure, just leave or no, stay. And it even goes on after this when he begins mocking uh, Dan Hilliard and even takes the radio and smashes it on the ground, uh, which comes to find out was a very bad move because had he not smashed it, we he would have known that the police were going to be on the street, which is what uh, 
which is what Hal tries to warn him about there in the next scene in the giant diner. And it even goes to show that Hal himself is still very young because he pulls the gun on the police officer who clearly doesn't notice him when he's in the phone booth, but puts himself into a bad situation and then is run over by a semi truck due to his, uh, due to what he decided to do. That's a good point about uh, Glenn Griffith smashing the radio where that definitely would have tipped him off, but it's kind of that, um, you know, pride goes before the before the fall. His mm-hmm. pride is so bruised by his brother saying, "I want out. I I can't hang with you any longer because you're gonna mess things up. We're going to be in serious jeopardy, in trouble if I stay with you." So I do think it is a great scene where we see Griffith just lose control. He's already been mostly in control, able to wrangle everybody in and kind of keep things uh, in charge. But then when his own brother doesn't want to be under his control anymore and listen to his plan, I think Bogart does a great job of portraying that frustration Uh, when he starts smashing things, trying to kind of like a child throwing a tantrum in a way, trying to show that, uh, you know, he's mad, but, uh, you know, I'm still in charge. I'll break all your stuff if I want to. It's a really good scene. Yeah, and it just kind of goes even show how much control he's losing Mm -hmm. At this point, too, because from really from here on, especially, he just slowly begins losing more and more control over the entire situation. Uh, once he breaks, I would say once he tries to assert a dominance and breaks the radio, it's that mistake that really would have saved him had he not done the thing that he did. Um, and then from here on out, he just slowly begins to just lose all control that he had at the very beginning of the movie from everything. His brother is gone who decided that he wanted to leave. Uh, then he gets a hold of the empty gun because Dan had outsmarted him. Uh, and then everything. He just kind of loses, loses control over everything. We get to see how he kind of tries to accept it and then also tries to escape from it and then can't. It's a really nice connection between um, the gun that Hal had and they trace it to the Hilliards. I thought that was really great writing. That was really brilliant because yeah. most I – don't, I don't know. But I can't think of – too many other movies that um, would be this plausible with how they trace the bad guys to certain places. Either it's too simple, somebody will tip them off, or there'll be something, but I was really pleased with this uh, connection. Yeah, I was too, and I was a bit surprised, because like, I was like, okay, well, Hal's dead, but how are they going to trace him back? You know, that is, I mean, sure, they'll probably recognize who he is, but how are they going to get to 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 the other, to his brother and uh, Kobish there at the very end? And then we find out that it was, they find out that the gun that he had was registered under uh, Dan's name, which, of course, that kind of sets everything up for there for the end. Yeah, really nice connection that they have here because you, if you look close, you can kind of see the name engraved on the gun, uh, but only if you look really close. But they never bring any reference to it other than the fact that they have a gun. Uh, up until this one scene. One of the things that I did notice with the actress who plays Cindy is whenever she gets on the phone, especially here towards the end, she um, starts playing with the phone wire with one of her hand, kind of twirling it around. And I think that's really nice acting. That's a great job, really showing her nervousness, just kind of in that little nuance of twiddling with the phone cord. Right, right. She, I think Cindy is probably one of the best actor actresses in here. Mm-hmm. She does a really good job at like showing that she is under a lot of pressure, especially in yeah. these scenes when she's on the phone, but also going to show that she's trying really hard to 
display herself as not as under pressure, but you can kind of tell, even if you're on the line, that something's not right with her. She does a really good job in these scenes, I think. And I will say, I think this ending here is very exciting. And I would also say very intense because Dan is really worried because there's, I mean, the police swarm this neighborhood. They lock down this neighborhood. You know, everybody has to stay in their homes. They've got people with, you know, I don't know what, tear gas launchers, machine guns, snipers. They've got the works. They're ready to take these people out. And with today's tech, that would be much easier, you know, thermal vision, flash grenades, you know, night night scopes and what things like that. But they don't have that in this right. movie, which is kind of nice, actually, because that makes it so easy otherwise. But with this, it's not as easy. Um, he's like, I want to go back in there and help my family. And pretty much everybody is overriding him and saying, no, you're not going back in there. And there's a great line where they say it's suicide if you go back in. And he responds, there comes a time when that just doesn't factor in. And uh, it's more about him protecting his family. He He's like, I'll die and protect them. But, uh, and I will say, it's, it. this is really desperate here at the end. This is the finale uh, when Griffith says, we're, gonna, we're not going to take you anymore. I'm going back on the promise that I made you. We're going to take everybody. And he's like, I like having a lot of people surround me. It makes me feel better. And uh, that just gets really, really heated and intense. Yeah, and this it's also interesting too because this mu- this movie only has four instances of music: one at the beginning, one at the end, and two in the middle, mm-hmm. uh, more towards the end. But other than that, there's no music really anywhere in this movie. No comp, not, no comp, uh, no no score for it. I guess you could say, uh, which is very, very interesting because I mean, it makes sense because it's a play, but. Uh, based off of a play but it's just very interesting because most of the attention that's built here is due solely because of the acting and this is one of the best scenes that is put on display there is a bit of a musical composition uh there in the later part of this climax i guess you could say but they do a really good job at building tension without using music it's all done through acting and editing, which is a really good way of, a really interesting way of building tension in a movie where you would typically see them use music to help it, to aid with that. So it's interesting that they do that. And that's, I think that's just due to film back then where uh, the actors, like everything was so reliant upon the actors. They didn't have um, what we would consider today visual effects and we've talked about this before the score being so different and just different things like that i mean yeah cinematography lended to how uh, intense scenes were but i think being creative with the camera was coming into its own probably around this time so it was really incumbent upon the actors especially because a, a lot of these actors uh, were originally on the stage uh, doing stage plays and that is right. completely different with with acting and stuff but and i i do think we've lost that um f- more or less in today's day and age you, you'll see it sometimes but uh i feel like in these movies back then the actors were the ones building the intensity and in the scenes and they didn't they didn't have to let um you know, fancy editing or scoring kind of carry those scenes for them. Now, I'm not knocking scores and things like that in editing because I think those are great and lend really well to 
certain movies and, and extents, but I just wish you know we don't have the Bogarts anymore. You know, yeah, uh, more or less. Now some of them we we do have still great actors, but just this type of filmmaking and acting is I feel like it's kind of going away. And I think the best, I think the best really scene, I guess you could say, or maybe I guess the best way of putting it is expression, uh, is in this scene when Dan explains to Glenn that Hal is dead, and you get this really poignant expression on Bogart's face when he hears this news. Uh, it's almost makes you feel bad for him because you kind of just feel without even really any words, you feel all this emotion that he's feeling uh, just by a simple expression. And then he goes to say, go ahead, pull the trigger. You know, it's whatever. Uh, it's it's such an interesting way of, de- of showing emotion in this one scene because you know how much he cared for Hal and how much he how and how he grew up and showed Hal how to do things, and then you get to find out that he's dead, and his expression kind of just tells everything that without ever ever really explaining things to us how what he's feeling. It's a great scene. You're absolutely right, and it especially makes it more poignant when. Griffith feels like he's holding all the cards by having the gun to his son's head and then finding out because Griffith is always kind of chiding Dan for trying to outsmart him throughout the whole movie. And then when he finally does, you can just see that expression of defeat on his face. And one of the other great expressions right after this is when Dan kicks him down the stairs. And when he looks back up at the stairs at him and right before he's going outside, he just looks so defeated and uh, I I love that expression on Bogart's face. Right. And I love this line that he gives to, that he tells Dan too. He's like, you don't got it in you, Pop. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. And the dad says, yes, I do. You you put it there. Oh, yeah. But he doesn't pull the trigger, which is so interesting to me that the dad had the opportunity to kill this man, but the dad's smart. He knows that killing him would really there wouldn't really be any reason for him to do so. He's at this point, the family's back. There's no way that he's going to take control ever that Dan or that Glenn's going to be taking control again for his family. He's already won at this point. There's really no reason for him to pull the trigger and kill him. I thought that was very, very interesting, a very interesting choice that they put in the movie or maybe even happened in real life that the dad so easily. In fact, he, in in some sense, he had all the reason to pull the trigger and kill Dan and to, and kill Glenn, but he doesn't. He leaves that up to the to, to the police force, the law, to do that. And that ties back to an earlier scene when Dan tells Glenn, he said, "I never understood people like you until today, because I want to kill you just as much as you want to kill me." It goes along right. those lines, and he says, "If I get the opportunity to, I will." And it's really interesting how. Dan is, he's like equating his feelings and actions to that of Griffith, but they're really not the same at all because Mm -hmm. Griffith is just a murderer, just a cold blooded murderer, whereas Dan is killing to protect his family. So there's that difference between just like killing and murdering. And this is when that proving moment comes where, uh, you know, he's saying, well, you said you'd kill me. Now go ahead and do it. And he's saying, no, you know, nobody's in harm's way now, like you said. Everybody's out of the house. Everybody's safe. Now, I guarantee you if he could have shot first and he knew his like son or one of his other kids or wife was going to die, then he would have. But like you said, and especially Bogart portrays it so well, this uh, just expression exudes of just complete defeat. He's like, I've defeated you. 
you know, I'm not going to shoot you. You need to. And I think that is such an admirable trait is showing he's like, although it would be completely human to kind of get that vengeance, you know, of like all that you've put me and my family through. I think it's great that he doesn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, okay. I will say that. Okay. I forgot that the gun was empty. Did you remember the whole time? Were you not worried the whole time? No, I wasn't worried the whole time because I remember seeing Dan taking the bullets off out of the uh, the magazine and then uh, then cocking the gun to pull out the extra bullet in the chamber. Uh, so I knew that the gun was empty. And I guess I was a bit surprised. Well, guess I was a bit surprised that Glenn didn't know that the gun was empty because you always get that line of you don't you all need to know the weight of a loaded yeah. gun um, that you will hear a lot. Uh, that was my only surprise, but I guess it makes sense because he's been in jail for what? How long was it? Eight, eight years, years, six years, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So I mean, makes sense. Uh, so I was, I guess, a little bit surprised about that. But other than that, no, I knew that the gun was empty when he was pointing it at uh, at uh, Ralph's head. Uh, when he was unloading the gun, they're saying, "Are you crazy?" And I'm thinking, "Okay, what is he doing? I can't really see where he's going with this." And then when it does come into play. And we get that really great shot of Griffith standing in the back of corner of the room with the gun to his son's head. It's pretty disturbing. And then the dad is saying, trust me, run, run out of here. Trust me. And, and I'm like, what are you doing? And then I was like, oh, wait, that's why he unloaded the gun. Mm -hmm. But I was worried at first when he pulled the gun out of pulled the gun off of Dan. I'm like, he's going to feel that there's nothing in there. But he doesn't. And right. his. it's also very possible that he would, under more calm circumstances, realize that the gun wasn't unloaded. But I think he had so much going on, probably, with trying to escape and get out of there, that the thought wasn't occurring to him. Right. That, and I'm guessing that just years in jail, he hasn't really held a gun yeah, that's loaded that's or unloaded. True. That's also, I'm sure, part of the reason that his feeling where, with the weight uh, of a loaded and unloaded gun has just kind of deteriorated since then. So that's probably also part of it as well. So my thought process when he uh, falls down the stairs and he sees the gun laying at kind of the midsection of the stairs and he puts it in his pocket, I thought, oh, okay, you know what he's going to do? He's not going back to jail. He's going to go out there and pretend like he has a loaded gun and, you know, like he's aiming it at people and they'll kill him which is very similar to the end of the town when, um, what's his name? Uh, I can't remember. Jeremy Renner's character tells Ben Affleck, he says, I'm not going back to prison. If this goes south, we're holding court on the streets, which is such a great line. And I'm like, that's mm -hmm. what Griffith is going to do. That's where they got this from. But that doesn't, I was wrong. That's not what he does. He uh, yeah. gives a pretty good attempt at breaking that light and running out. I was, I see, I didn't know what he was going to do because yeah. I'm just like, okay, well, that's an empty gun. You can't do much with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and the police are far enough away where that if you were to try and pistol whip some of, one of them, it, you're not going to get very far with yeah. that. <laughs> uh, so I was, when he went out there, I was like, okay, it's just like a last ditch effort He when he throws the gun and destroys the light. But there's, you know, more than one light that's there. Uh, and so they don't take, they don't waste much time before he's shot and he dies. They're right on the lawn. Uh, but yeah, I was a bit surprised that he, that it was like a last ditch effort thing and he could have gotten it had there been only one night, he probably could have escaped, but there wasn't. And he was over, and he was, I guess you could say he was outsmarted by Dan and the and, and the, also being the police force there too. 
Now, okay, I gotta look this up real fast because I want to make sure I'm right. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Well, this movie came out the exact same year, this one that I'm about to mention. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, they came out actually within the very same month, Rebel Without a Cause. I'm not trying to give anything oh. away, but the end felt a little similar with the unloaded gun and the shooting. I'm not trying to give anything away, listeners, if you haven't seen one of the greatest I, films ever. I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, side fact, I actually did get to see that in the theater. That was pretty cool. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it's pretty great in the theater, I got to say. Sure it is. But I know exactly what you're talking about, so yes. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting. They came out in the same month, a few weeks apart, and they're ending with the unloaded gun. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hmm. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, and then, of course, we kind of get this very uh, pleasant ending, which I couldn't help but think of. Have you seen The Burbs with Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher? No, I know of it. I know it exists, but I haven't seen it. Well, just the shot of the neighborhood. Um, and I feel like this is kind of will be like used in horror movies later on where we kind of get this uh, zoom out shot of the entire neighborhood. And there's, you know, police mm -hmm. cars and ambulances and everything's fine. Very much reminded me of the burbs, which I'm sure probably took a little bit from this. But um I do really like how the family goes inside and then uh, Dan, the dad, sticks his hand back out and waves Chuck on in. Like, come on, you're part of the family right. now. I thought that was a nice uh, little uplifting touch for the very end. Right. And also Ralph kind of puts aside his differences and kisses his dad there at the end as well. Yes, that's yeah, right. It, it, yeah, it's, it's, it is a very happy ending because it kind of relieves all this tension that's just kind of been building and building and building up until the last like 30 seconds here at the very end. And so, yeah, it's a nice ending. Real, real nice, real peachy. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for The Desperate Hours? I think really the biggest thing when it comes to recommending this is that uh, it's not necessarily... There are a lot of movies that are kind of like this. I think one of the more recent examples is maybe even The Strangers. Uh, we do have home invasion movies that, that do still exist that are very prevalent. Um I guess paranormal activity could be considered one we take. Now it's more of a supernatural angle with it. But I think that even though this movie is a bit dated uh, to just over time, that's just kind of how it goes. It still holds up very well. And I think that they do a really good job, uh, despite not really using much music, keeping the tension there and still very much alive, I guess you could even say, uh, that it just keeps building and building and building. And... Anyways, they even though I do kind of consider some of this stuff to be a bit shallow, uh, that's really nothing I would consider to be a criticism for the most part because it makes sense why it is. It's meant to be one of those movies that you're just supposed to empathize with uh, and then have that scare you or have that bring build tension into you because of familiarity and having that being twisted. But at the same time, there really is no reason for it to be here just in general because with, with it, it would have taken away from the movie's pace. It would have made it a bit odd more odd to have put more like we were talking about more character building in certain scenes than not uh overall 
really good movie. I really did enjoy it, and I one that I would probably end up owning at some point. I'm sure all four of these that we've talked about, I will own up. I'll end up owning at some point because I've enjoyed them all for the most part. Uh, anyways, as a score, I give it an eight out of ten. A pretty high recommend if you can get your hands on it. I would definitely check it out. It's something that is kind of also interesting to see because a lot of home invasion movies, I'm sure, take a lot out of this off of this one just due to the fact that this one was probably the most original one that came out at the time of this kind of a thing. So other than that. Yeah, 8 out of 10. That's a strong recommend. Strong recommend. Wow. The Desperate Hours is a harrowing tale for the time of a suburban family terrorized in their own home by three escaped convicts and their brave attempts to save each other. Just the title alone evokes feelings of anguish and intense struggle. Now, The Desperate Hours doesn't feature the deepest characters, the greatest writing, or the best story. All the acting is well enough, though this is my least favorite Bogart performance I've seen. What makes this film great is the tight story it tells. It is frightening to see this close loving family be stressed to their limits as they try to stay on the good side of murderers who have overtaken their home. The family is instantly likable as we root for them to get away, and the bad guys are reprehensible as we root for their downfall, and it's great to see their demise in such a strong way. The Desperate Hours is a unique movie for the time, considering it's most likely the first in what would become the home invasion subgenre of either horror or thriller. Joseph Hayes creates a great suspenseful movie as we journey with his family in their desperate hours. The Desperate Hours receives 8 stars out of 10 with a strong recommend. And you know, the most recent home invasion movie I was thinking of was this year's uh, Breaking In. That you and Curtis reviewed on Silver Screen Guide. That's right. I forgot about that one. So uh, probably for good reason. Is uh, so it's pretty much as good as this movie, right? Basically, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's basically the Citizen Kane of all home invasion movies. Yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, we're being facetious. I haven't seen Breaking In yet. <laughs> I missed it, um, but we do have the it's review up. Not one that is really worth your time. I'll say that. <laughs> Yeah, so you can enjoy listening to uh, Alan and Curtis's thoughts for that movie. But listeners, we want to say thank you for joining us on our entire Humphrey Bogart retrospective series and for this final episode here. We may come back next year or someday in the future to pick up and review some more of Bogart's films. Uh, we will, if we ever pick this back up again, we have to review his uh, Oscar winning performance in The Kane Mutiny. Uh, okay i don't think i've heard of that one, i watched it for the first time last year i think i got the blu-ray for christmas okay i think from what my memory serves seeing all of them it, it is his best performance ever he deserved the oscar it was so brilliant oh all right now I'm interested. <laughs> well listeners if you're interested in seeing uh well hearing us review more Humphrey Bogart movies, then let us know in the comments below. We love talking about films and we love talking about them with you. Thank you once again, and make sure to subscribe and like the podcast, share with your friends and family, and those links for subscribing through social media or email or on iTunes, those are all in the description below. They're very easy to find. Just click on them and it'll just take you to where you need to go. And uh, also, if you enjoy this podcast and this review, then go ahead and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We would really appreciate that because it does help us get noticed in the rankings. 
and it'll help more people find the podcast. And like we said, we love talking about movies, not just with each other. We That's not why we do it. It's because only Alan and I care what each other think. We care what you all think as well, too. Uh, that's why we want to get your feedback. And we uh, love talking about movies with everybody. It's why we're doing a podcast to get our thoughts out there. And uh, watching film is a community thing. It's great and we love it. And we are coming up on the end of the year, so we will be having our Christmas special, Miracle on 34th Street. Super excited to revisit that classic. As am I. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm curious to see what it's about, because I've heard a lot of things. People get on to me about it say, Alan, why have you seen this? It is a true Christmas classic, a true Christmas staple, uh, and I can't wait to review it. If you're in the Christmas mood and you want some more Christmassy type reviews, then go ahead and check out last year's Christmas special, a Miracle on 34th Street. That'll be in the description. Uh, no, no. Uh, it's a Wonderful <laughs> Life. That will be in the there description below. So We're reviewing Miracle on 34th Street again. <laughs> yes, we are reviewing it again. The uh, 2000 Matilda version. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, anyways, It's a Wonderful Life. Check that out. It's in the description below. You can listen to that Christmas Eve review to get you in the season. Once again, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be coming back with that Christmas special very soon. And we also will be coming with a lot of Oscar stuff. Oscar season is heating up in about, you know, a little over a month. We will know the nominees. Mm -hmm. We will give you our predictions. We will give you our thoughts on the nominees. And then, of course, we will do the post-Oscar show and tell you whether uh, we think the Academy messed up or whether they did a great job. So, listeners, once again, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Uh, get rid of so that he is what? probably one of the more uh, difficult ones. Where'd you go? Are you still there? Uh oh. You're frozen like the movie. Frozen in time. Frozen in time.